Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. My name's Sean and this is episode 68. Welcome indeed. Ronan here. Thank you very much for joining us. This week we are back to our usual format. We're going to be doing one big review for you. That's Tyrants of the Underdark. Sean, we're getting a bit stuck on Dungeons and Dragons games here. We are. We are. We're going underground this time though. Going underground. London under... No. Nah, nah, didn't okay. feel that at all. But this one's very different. This one is a deck builder area control game. So nothing like the dungeon crawls. We're also covering six other games. Sean, your three are? My three Ronan are Elfenland, The Shadow Over Westminster, and Signori. And I'm going to be discussing Thief's Market, Il Vecchio, and Project Elite. And we had our winner for our big Gen Con Cool Stuff Inc. competition. Well done to Megan Hildebrand. And thank you very much to everybody else who entered that competition. It'll be announced very soon on the Dice Tower, if not already by the time this comes out. Well done, Megan. Thanks for the visual image of you jumping around your room. Hope you enjoy your games and best of luck winning the big one. And of course, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there for fabulous gaming podcast and of course the dice tower itself if you want to download our episodes go to podbean stitcher or itunes So the first game we're going to kick off with is Thief's Market. It was released this year, 2016. The publisher is Tasty Minstrel Games. It's for three to five players, around a 45-minute playtime. And the designer is Dave Chalker. He designed a card game release last year, Heat, but probably best known for the other shorter game, Get Bit, in which you're playing cards and trying to stop yourself from being torn apart by a shark. It's, uh, it's slightly less gruesome than that. It's very popular filler. This one is mechanically a dice roller and a tableau builder and i split you choose maybe not there's a bit of that in there and we'll get into it thematically we are a bunch of thieves who've gone out and we have some loot to share around each round we're going to be splitting that loot that we have acquired and then we're going to be taking the loot to the market in order to turn it into items or henchmen or Basically, turning the gems we've stolen into something useful for ourselves. We've been playing over a number of rounds, and the person with most victory points at the end is going to win. Depending upon the number of players, you're going to roll a different amount of dice. Up to 13 is the maximum for five players. On the dice, there are six different faces. There are four different colours of gem. There's a gold bag, which will get you a gold coin for later rounds, which ends up basically being a wild gem to spend. Or there's also a purple mask at the end of the round. If you retain that purple mask, that's one victory point to you. Each player then makes a decision whether they want to take some dice from the middle or they want to steal the dice that other players have taken. Now, if you take from the middle, you decide how many you take, you put them in front of you. If you steal from another player, you must take all the things they've taken, because there's one thing that's not a dice, it's the first player token who's going to get first dibs on the market, which is actually very important. But they take everything that person has. So let's say Sean had three dice in the first player marker. I would then have to return one of those before I keep the group. So I'm only going to get three things, but it's my choice what I return to the middle. And if I do return a dice, I roll it first before it goes back in. And we go round and round until all the players have got a pile of loot in front of them. Then whoever has that first player token is going to purchase cards from the market. 
There are always at least five cards available. There are three different ranks. As you can imagine, they get slightly more powerful as you go along and slightly more expensive. And you don't use all the cards in the deck during a game. You can gain powers from purchasing certain cards. They'll let you turn gems into other colors of gems. They'll let you turn gems into gold coins. There are powers to exchange coins for points all different things and each of the cards have got a list of gems they need down the left hand side and if you have those on your dice you can purchase that card it's in your tableau it's available to you for the rest of the game there's also cards that give you end game scoring just straight up points so there's like pieces of jewelry or things like that that at the end are just worth four or five points whatever they might be as i said there's henchmen you can hire whoever has the majority in them is going to score some points at the end there's some set scoring for certain cards there's cards that like give you points if your grouping is stolen from, so that's great if you're the first player because you can take all the dice and know that someone's going to take them off you and that's going to score you a point. And every time, just take the biggest grouping you possibly can. So if someone gets that card, it's quite important to make sure they're not going first at any point. There are cards that give you points for having other cards. There's, all, as you imagine, all sorts of different ways of scoring points in the end. Once you can't refill that tableau up to five cards off the rank three which is the highest level once you get down to it then people add up their points and whoever has got the most points is the winner at the end sean any thoughts on thief's market well it's a, it's a funny little one it it doesn't seem too too thinky when you first look at this one i haven't actually played it but once i started reading about it all sorts of like ways you can manipulate things and i really liked that selection round i really like the i can take all your stuff or i can take one from the middle but i'm leaving myself open if i'm not the last person i've just got a couple of questions for you about the game how tight is the actual gameplay in terms of how do the cards dictate the game gameplay and can somebody be ruled out early if they have an unlucky or poor choice of cards etc no, I don't think any of the cards are that powerful. And actually, quite often, when you're choosing from the middle, the people, let's say, who get last choice or end up with which you think are possibly least less valuable, they'll end up getting points, and especially those gold bags. Because when you're looking at the tableau, you're going, right, I need a, a white, a blue, and a green to buy the card I want. So the, the players who manage to get the white, blue, and green are not going to be going for the gold bags and points. So you'll take those gold bags and go, that's cool. I won't buy anything this round. I now have so many options for the next round because each of these gold coins is any gem I like that there's almost no way of someone running away. The only way of running away in points is having clever card combos or getting a card that you can exploit. So it might be that you turn two gold coins into a point or the other way around. Uh, so you just go, right, cool. I'm just going to hammer the gold coins. And that what that does is it leads to different priorities for different players because according to how they've built their tableau is what they want from the middle, which is quite clever actually because you're not all just chasing the same card i might be going for the henchman bonus you might have something that goes with red gems and you've got something that convert other gems into red gems and therefore and learning what other people are trying to do is part of the game for sure okay so you're taking the dice from the middle or from other people and you're trying to get the sort of perfect hand of dice or for yourself it seems to me that mechanically you could have like an endless dice selection if, if everyone takes from each other and people are always going around. How likely is that? Well, what happens is if I take from you, one of those dice goes back in the middle. And then if someone else takes from another person, that dice go back in the middle. And quite quickly, you get in a situation where the middle is the best selection. And because getting you get to a stage where it's one person making a choice off, if I take the middle, that's round over. You can't actually let the middle get too good. 
That is definitely one of the clever ways of going, I'd like your set of dice because I can get rid of one and still have what I want. But actually that leaves five dice in the middle or something ridiculous, which just hands too much to the next person. So as well as having rounds where you're getting specific combinations and then other rounds where you go, no, I'll just take the gold coins and and I'll keep my powder dry. There's other rounds where you go, look, this is going to be rubbish for me, but I cannot possibly let that person have five dice because it'll be too good for them. And that's part of it as well. And it's not just my decision. What the players do before me can force that decision upon me. So I might be the second last player and I go, hold on, let me think ahead. If I take that, that makes that so good that the next person on my left is going to have to take that. It's very much groupthink and group play. And because it doesn't go around clockwise either, once you get to one person who hasn't got a stash in front of them, it leaps straight to them. Right, what do you want to do? I'll take this, which means the person I'm taking from, it's now your decision. What do you want to do? And you can almost pass the buck of responsibility to make sure you do well, but don't set that person up. It's kind of frustrating, but it's a good frustrating because what I want you to do is not necessarily what you want to do. And we're all playing with this group so i might get annoyed going oh what are you doing that for and you go in because it works for me just because you don't like it and it, it definitely adds to the theme of these thieves with well yeah we've, we've done this together we're all going to get something but we've all got definitely different ways that we're pulling i'm thinking it'll only last about an hour or so tops is that, is that oh yeah not it? even that long mate more like half an hour 45 minutes something like that Right, you've got me interested, Ronan. What did you think? You're sounding quite positive, so I'm getting good vibes. How did you find the game? <laughs> Am I giving out good vibrations here? You are, mate. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I actually did it quite a lot. Uh, the components are good. The artwork style is quite pleasing, although some of the artwork is a bit unimaginative. It's just a picture of a handbag or something like that. Work on that a little bit. Unusually for a filler like this, when, when you start thinking short game, you think three, four or five players, you think maybe the upper end is better for short games. In this one, actually, I found that a lower player count is better because you can follow on what's going on more and you're aware of each other's priorities more. And I like that, that there's some thought to it, but it's quick enough and there's another round coming and there will be more cards out and no cards seem to be wildly overpowered that, well, there'll be something good next time. Or that's okay. I want to do well this round, but if I don't, it's not the end of the world. I think familiarity with the card helps, which shows that there's some skill in the game. It's a really good, solid, short game is Thief's Market. Very good. Well, we're going from cold to the new to cold to the old now. This game was released in 1998 originally, and it's Elfenland by Alan R. Moon, very famous for Ticket to Ride. It comes from a whole slew of publishers, including... Rio Grande, Amigo Spiel, Hobby World. It's been distributed in the UK by Coiled Spring Games. What is Elfenland? Well, it's set in a mythical elf world. Your players are going to be taking on the role of fledgling elves, trying to visit as many of the elf cities as possible to prove their worth or something along those lines. The board in front of you represents a map with all of those cities, and each of those cities has a marker of each player colour. And to play the game, each player will have a number of tiles depicting modes of travel, and a set of cards with the same modes of transport. Players will place tiles on the paths between the cities, and they're going to play cards of the same type of that tile to move along the path. Now, each different types of terrain will take a certain amount of these cards to get across. Then, it's very simple. It's a race to plan your route and visit as many of these cities as possible, with the person making it to most being the winner. And that's Elfenland. 
when I opened that box, I was expecting a really a simple kids game. But what you actually get is something way deeper than that, and it actually makes you think. It's not the most intuitive game at first. It takes a little bit of like, what do I actually do? How do I make the most of this? But deeper than I first thought, Ronan. Well, surely the first thing you thought when you opened that box was, oh my God, this looks terrible. No, no, not even close. I really <laughs> like it. We the- have, we've had them <laughs> at the table. I really like the artwork. What? You're crazy. The artwork needs updating. No, I thought it was quirky, mate. I like that old cartoony style. I don't think it was trying to be anything that it wasn't. Everything had that sort of humorous, sort of almost fun feel to it. And I, I liked it. Shocking artwork. Okay. <laughs> In terms of gameplay, yes. First thing I think you have to say to people, and you're going to have to be careful about the group that you choose to play this with, because it's mean, it's hard, you will get in each other's way, you will have bad turns sometimes, and you just got to go with the flow a bit. Definitely, Sean, we, we'd heard of the game. I hadn't really looked into it much. I had an idea it was moving around a board. That was about it. So I didn't know much about it until we got it out, read the rules, played it with the kids and the rest of us. And, oh... It just started making me laugh straight away because it's hard. It's it genuinely, you and there's a lot of thinking and there's a lot of comparisons of hold on. If I use my pig to get through this wood, that's one. But if I use my elf cart, that might be two. And then, oh no, I forgot a dragon can't go across there. And you're really like struggling to work everything out. I think you can play it in two ways as well. You can play it with the kids as we did on our first play, where you can just be a bit nicer you've got roadblock tiles that we just didn't play at all so you can tailor it to to the younger kids and not be so mean shall we say or you can just play with actual gamers and your friends and actually just be complete fools bad people (laughs) bad people well it's hilarious because your tile drawers and so you put the tiles down those routes you know what cards you can play if you draw one that's useless to you in your hand you can keep it or Hold on, it looks like Sean's going across. And he's definitely going from that city to that city. And then he's left a gap on his route in between. Here you go, have a random tile. See how that suits you. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, yeah, when, when we played this with us, the adults, it, it just felt like a totally different game. It, you're almost sending out decoys. And you're making sure that you're not showing exactly where you're going and trying to get people to try and stitch you up in the wrong place or do the thing that you want them to do. So it actually becomes quite a a cerebral game where you're actually trying to outthink people as well. You want to be near people because then they're putting tokens down on roads and you might be able to follow them. But then you don't want to be near anyone because then you can plan your own individual moves. And it's that push and pull off yeah, they could put something down that will make extend my moves for me. Or they might put completely the wrong token down and I have to spend three cards just to get down there and it'll be horrible. Yeah, and I thought also after the first game where you you are going to stumble a little bit thinking like, well, okay, what do I do and what order do I do it? And But once you've got that first round underway, I think it does flow really quickly, gets out of there quick before it becomes a hindrance. For sure, yeah, and even at the higher player counts, people's turns are so quick, and you're involved because the first few is a little bit drafting and then placing tokens, and it's only when you're planning your own move, that's when you're doing something individually, but you're able to look at the board at that stage and you see everything, you go, okay, well this is my best move, and maybe you might have to wait for first or second player in turn order, but the third, fourth, fifth will just know what they're doing. These two here, this one here, these two here, these three here, there you go, that's my move done. And, And actually that's quite 
part of the fun of it is that the only when all those tokens are down can you see what's on the board you can really have an idea of what you're going to be doing before that point there's no ap there's no too much going on you're just thinking maybe that tile suit my hand or maybe that one will it's a choice of one or two as opposed to everyone taking a long time to make all their decisions just to make absolutely clear there, there is luck involved in this game i think clever and observant play will probably be rewarded more often than not but there is that element of luck you can if you're really unlucky get caught out and st- well i've got four trolls in my hand and no troll tiles came up but that's a bad draw but the other part of that is that you can see what tiles other people have selected and you can look and see well they've got lots of that tile where are they where are they going to be likely to be going how can i bridge across to them to then follow the stuff that they're putting down that's possible again probably not with the kids they're not doing that but with gamers you're looking at each other's tiles going mm, okay looks like you've got a handful of bores or you could just be completely horrible and just stitch everyone up it's pretty funny though <laughs> so Sean I'll give my final thoughts on Elfenland I enjoyed it a lot a lot more than I thought I would it worked with the kids like Sean said we took the obstacle tiles out the obstacle tiles you can put it anywhere on the board it's only once in the whole game but it's an extra card to get down there and that can just mess someone's perfect turn up and it just didn't feel right with the kids but with gamers it did feel right and it was very funny and I wouldn't build a game night around it, but maybe towards the end, when everyone's had a laugh, maybe you've had some a couple of beers, what have you, and you just want to play something that's thinky but stitchy-uppy, and you can point at someone else and laugh at their misfortune, knowing that in 10 seconds' time, someone else is going to be suffering some sort of misfortune. So Elfenland is a definite winner for me. Absolutely the same for me, Ronan. It's, it was a surprise winner, and something that I'm actually quite happy to have played and to have experienced and it just shows you you don't have to buy brand new games all the time some of the old boys are still holding their own so well done Elfenland indeed well done (laughs) so another slightly older game is our third one this time around this is Il Vecchio this is from Hall Games and Pegasus Spiel. It's a 2012 release, so four years old now. Two to four players, 60-minute playtime. That's about right. The designer is Rudiger Dorn. Now, he's been a famous designer for a long time, and he's still designing hits. He brought out Istanbul, Karuba, Goa, Las Vegas, names that you've probably heard of in gaming. In terms of Ulvecchio, it's themed around the Medici family are losing their influence in Florence in the 15th century. All the players are other families who are looking to come in and grab power. The Medicis are still powerful, therefore everything you do has to be via middlemen. The way this works is, the board is a map of the towns around Florence. It's got Florence itself in the middle, and it's also got three other provinces represented of Milan, Venice and the Papal States. You have meeples who are your family members and you're going to be placing them into the towns around Florence in order to do certain actions via middlemen and also you're looking to get them onto the councils in Florence, Milan, Venice and the Papal States in order to score points and get various things and we'll get into that. Also on the board are these middlemen. Now they will follow routes clockwise around the board going from their type of town to their type of town. Each of the towns on the board has got a particular type to it where a certain middleman will visit and none of the others will. What you want to do on your turn usually is activate a family member, paying to move them to a town where a middleman is, and where that middleman is, take the action for it. Now, what can the middleman do? 
There's three types which correspond to three different types of followers who are assassins, knights, and priests, and they just have colours. And what they'll do is they will help you to get into places on the councils of the provinces, again, Milan, Venice, and the Papal States, which is going to cost you money and score you points. So it's going to cost you money. Cool. There's a middleman there who will give you money. The other things the middlemen do will give you carriage tokens. They allow you to move around the board for free, giving some freedom where your family members are. They'll be able to get scrolls from those middlemen. They'll help you get into Florence, onto the two councils there. And also, you can get these priests tokens. And what you can do with priest tokens is, is they become your middlemen. And you can spend them on a turn. You don't have to meet your family member with a middleman in a town. You just take the action where you are off whichever one it is that you want to do. The two tracks that are in Florence that you can promote family members to, and again, these cost scrolls and they might cost you money as well, are basically either going to give you an in-game power or end-game bonus points. So basically, when you go to Florence, you make a decision, shall I get better during the game or shall I score more points at the end? And obviously, there's a switch of time of when you really want to go for one or the other. The other couple of things you can do other than going on tracks or activating middlemen is... Whenever you use a family member, they lie down one at a time. You can just use your turn to stand them all up again. You can use your turn to gain a couple more family members. And all those rules can get broken by these in-game power tiles you have. The timer on the game are these Ilvecchio tokens. And basically, as the, the council ranks get filled up, it will trigger Ilvecchio tokens at certain points, certain spaces. When you put Meeple in there, that's it. It triggers. These tokens slip over. They add a bit of randomness to the game by moving middlemen or costing you a little punishment. But when they run out, that's when the game's going to finish and you get a, a special double round at the end to finish everything if you want to do. End of the game, you get points for your promoted family members, for the bonus tiles you have, for having a family member on each of the five council spaces, and for having a majority in each of the council spaces. And that's it. The end of that will be the winner, Sean Ilvecchio. I like the look of this one. It's, it's one of two Italian-based Euro games that we have today. So a little, little bit of a theme popping up there. I've got two sort of general questions and two specific questions. My first general question, Ronan, is people talk about this one being quite a light game. Now, I, I watched uh, Run Through with Rado, and I read the rule book. It, it doesn't seem that way to me. It seems like there is some depth to this, definitely. Is that true? I think why it feels so light is the point of a Euro is that you have a task to do, and there are obstacles in the way of completing that task. And I think generally... How tough the obstacles make the task is how deep we think the Euro is. So if I have to take 10 steps to achieve the one thing that's scoring me points, well, that feels like a heavy game. Or if I'm getting punished for doing things and I have to consider, like, well, that end Agricola, whatever it might be, well, I have to pay some stuff and I have to do that and it takes away my priorities of doing what I want to do, then that's where depth comes from and, and, and you know, crunchiness. In El Vecchio, there's not any real obstacles to what you want to do. You need to have money to move around, which is okay, but you can get carriage tokens. And once you have carriage tokens, you can just use that to move anywhere on the board, from north to south, as far as you like. You want to meet the middlemen, but if you can't do that, well, then get priest tokens, and then you don't need to meet the middlemen. And there's ways of mitigating everything, so you never really get stuck. And rather than being sort of like a Euro where you're trying to achieve a goal, it becomes more like a race. Because there's nothing really in your way. So it's how quickly and efficiently are you going to do what you think you need to do to win the game before the game finishes? 
Well, so one of my specific questions was about getting stuck in a rut. Uh, it seems like money is kind of the get out of jail clause here. You can do stuff if you've got money and if you run out of money, does that leave you at a massive disadvantage and maybe sort of stuck with without an engine? You definitely don't want to run out of money. That's probably the one thing, but it's the one thing I say to people, just make sure you don't run out of money. And and other than that, that's, that's it. Honestly, that's the only problem you can possibly come across. And there's always generally a way to get around it anyway. So make sure you have one carriage token because then you can move your family member to where the money middleman is and you'll be able to get five money straight away. Okay, and is it a game about planning, or is it a game about taking advantage of the opportunities given to you? Oh, a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B there, for sure. (laughs) So if you need a white follower, for example, you can see where that white wooden man's going to go. So you you get a family member into the next white town along that's unoccupied. There's actually some interesting things where you can have family members of different families in the same town and that can pressurize. And then who triggers the town before where the middleman is to move them onto that contested town gives the time into the next person. But then are you ready to take advantage of that? Or is there something else that's prioritized ahead of it? So there's a little bit of that. You you can see where the middleman are going to go. So it's quite simple planning. There's also parts of, do I leave this family member in place knowing that I'll always want money. So I'll leave them in one money town and then, Every time that middleman comes around, I can just trigger that dude and take some money. But then what if he stalls halfway around the board? So it's both, Sean. You position yourself for the opportunities that come your way, but sometimes things fall in your lap and you just go for them. Very good, very good. I'm liking the look of this one, Ryan, and we might have to play this soon. But last question. The end-of-game scoring has got this reputation, especially on board Game Geek, has been confusing. If it is, could it have been simplified in any way? Mm, no it's not <laughs> I don't really get that each of the council spaces has got the points that it's worth on there so you just add those up you've got end game I guess the end game bonus tiles there's, there is a cheat sheet so when you get them basically you pick up five from the top of the stack so you have a huge choice again there's, there's not agony of choice in the game because you look at five and one of them is going to suit what you've been doing you know sometimes in games you want an end game bonus card quite early on because if I'm looking to, I don't know, build the border tallest skyscraper, I want the build the tallest skyscraper bonus card as opposed to something else. In this, I'm going to look at five. So you're going to score some points. That's the only bit that's confusing it back to what you were talking about. Whether you have one in each council or not is obvious. You just look for your colour. Who's got the majority in each is obvious. Ties are broken by which is leftmost. Mm, I don't really get that complaint, I'd have to say. Fair dues, and what are your final thoughts on the game, Rona? It's a nice game. I think it's okay for a gateway. It doesn't look fantastic. It looks like it's more from 2002 than 2012. There isn't that tension in it. I find it competent, but I find it not very exciting. If someone got out and said, do you want to play Ilvecchio? I'd be like, yeah, cool, I'll play Ilvecchio. But I'm not sure I will ever choose to play it again. It's just in the nice to have played, but I don't really need to go back to it again, game. Okay, so we're going to jump to one of those games where I pull out my magician's hat and go, ta-da, and Ronan goes, oh my god, what what have you pulled out now? Does it rhyme with Lickmaster? (laughs) (laughs) So we're jumping to a 
quite obscure Kickstarter game. <laughs> no way! No, I know. I I thought I'd change it up a little bit for this episode because it's it's not really me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's called The Shadow Over Westminster. Plays one to four players. Designed by Robert Huss, and it came out in 2015 from Counter Clockwork Games. So, what is The Shadow Over Westminster? The players are agents working in London, and you're trying to stop a cataclysm. And you're going to do this by deck building, and also visiting places in London to quell the rising threat by investigating cult uprisings, gathering artefacts, and improving your abilities. So the currencies in this game are investigation and research. And research is going to be needed to gather artifacts and abilities. And investigation is what you need to solve these mysteries and eventually try to stop the cataclysm. The areas on this on the board you can visit include the museum, where you're going to get artifacts. The library, where you're going to hand in completed investigations to improve your hand size. And this is what moves the game forward as well. The warehouse and the underground, and this is where these disturbances are going to happen and you must investigate them by paying your investigation cards that you've gathered, depending on the size of the disturbance. And the cataclysm area itself, and that's what you must stop to win the game. There's not a whole lot more to this, but you also get exposure cards if you go, for instance, to do an investigation and you don't do it straight away then you're going to get an exposure card for hanging around. If you leave the investigation without doing it, you're going to get exposure card and they clock up your deck. Like any deck builder, you're always going to have these little rubbishy cards. There are also what are called darkness cubes at each area, or they go to each area when certain conditions are met. And if an area gets full of darkness cubes, then something bad will happen and all the investigators will be moved off that space. It's a deck builder with a map, kind of like our main game. (laughs) But, yeah, Ronan, any thoughts? Sometimes, when you come up with these Kickstarter games, I look at them and I say, oh, yeah, if I saw that, it it looks kind of cool and it's got good components and it seems quite exciting. And then I looked at this. Dull, (laughs) flat, and plain, and... It doesn't... Even the cards are just text, mostly. What drew you in? Other than it was Cthulhu and it had the word Westminster in it. What drew you in? Pretty much because it actually had the words Westminster and Cthulhu was in it, Ronan. It got some good reviews. Some people were talking about... <laughs> Hold on. People gave Kickstarter game good previews. <laughs> oh, don't let me flip. I'm going to lie down for a second here. I heard some good talk about it. It was moving around the old resale places, like 40, 50 pounds it was moving around for. I even tried to bid for it on a, in a Facebook group and I didn't, it wasn't successful because I got gazumped. And I thought, yeah, I want to give this a go. And it's live in London. So I thought, yeah, that's cool. We'll, we'll give it a go. I'm all one for the, giving these, these minor publishing houses and new designers. I, I, I'm happy to give them a chance. And uh, this one, You're altruistic is what you are. That's exactly what I am. Good work. <laughs> Just what I think of you. <laughs> <laughs> However, this one didn't really pay off. <laughs> no. So, all right. I don't think it looked very exciting in terms of looks. But it off itself and the idea and what have you, cool. What I was reading about it is, as with almost all co-op deck builders... We've talked about Legendary. We've talked about a big book of madness. It's got scaling issues. 
and that with fewer players it's far far too easy and it doesn't scale very well and in fact a lot of the really good reports were for people who played either at convention or with four players a lot of the negative reports and people coming on bgg saying with two players how do I make it harder? And actually, the designer is very active on BGG and he's very part of the community and he chats to people and he's explained stuff. There's a missing sentence in the rule book. There's little gaps here and there. The things that you can forgive from a smaller publisher and like I say, a designer at least is filling all those gaps and helping out. But this issue of it being too easy with fewer players, what are your thoughts on that, Sean? Well, I've played it one and two players myself. Let's just start with the solo player. Solo player is a pointless exercise there on your own and it's not actually easier i think two players yeah is too easy but one player is just it's pointless because you don't have the cards to start in your deck you have to follow an exact route you're completely on rails otherwise you can't do anything you can't get the investigation cards into your hand you can't get your hand size up you have to go down that artifact road the first half of the game you might as well just write off and start at the midway point. And then it just becomes an exercise in tedium. You very rarely have enough investigation cards in your hand to do the investigation first off. So you're going to spend two goes sitting there doing nothing, boring, and it just becomes repetition after repetition after repetition. Two-player games actually makes it a bit more interesting because you've got the co-op element coming into it and you can help each other with the investigations. But then it becomes too easy. You both can coordinate exactly what you need to do. Uh, you go there, you take an exposure, but I'll be there next round and, and we'll do it. Then next time I'll go first, I'll take an exposure, and then you come the next turn and we'll do it. And it just becomes really, really easy. I think we're going to talk about Legendary Firefly in another episode, seeing as how I've got it. Woohoo! But they have at least done something with the scaling, by the way, which is quite interesting. You talked about starting halfway through with the solo player game. Remember in Legendary games, it was too hard to start with because you had no deck. You have one or two preparatory rounds with higher number of players, so you can start building your deck before you have to jump into it. So at least they've thought about it. But we'll talk about that again another time. One of the things we're talking about is that there can be a betrayer in the game. So there's 16 cataclysms in there, and four of them expose one of the players as being a betrayer. Do you think that having the betrayer in there would make the game come to life? I think it certainly makes it more interesting, but the way they've done it is too clunky. It's a surprise to everyone. It's not like you start off as the betrayer and you know you're the betrayer, and you're slowly working your way up. Like, when that Cataclysm card gets flipped halfway through the game, oh, I'm a betrayer. All right, I better change everything I've been doing, because that's what the reveal is. Okay, so everything I've done up to now is just pointless, and now I've got to completely change my game and work against everyone, which is interesting, and there's an excitement factor to it, but it's a very, very clunky mechanism. People have suggested that when that betrayer is in there, you don't do too well. If you like, you kind of go, oh yeah, okay, I'm just going to, you know, let's not get too far ahead just in case I am the betrayer. One of the thoughts I had was, if I was going to play it, I think I'd do is I'd have the four betrayer cataclysms, I'd have four off the other cataclysms, and I'd shuffle those up and draw one out of there and then we've got a 50 50 chance of a betrayer and i'd like to see what that did to the team dynamic around the table 
that would improve it certainly. I just like the betrayal. Sorry, I, I made that sound like my idea. No, I'm getting all these from Borgen <laughs> Geek from other people. But yeah, that yeah, would certainly. Like to me. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> that, would, that would certainly improve it. Whether everyone gets a card like in Dead of Winter, where you just says, "Okay, you're the betrayer this round," and you just when the cataclysm turns over, you swap in the betrayer card and say, "No, this is what's actually happening because I've been working against you the whole game." I think it's a much more interesting game if someone's actively working against you. Looking at it, and I touched on it earlier, it seems like it doesn't work one or two player. And in fact, it's really a four player game. The system isn't that robust, but there are enough good reports out there from four player games from varying people and people that want to bring in these sort of variants to make it work better that there must be something there there must be a kernel it sounds like it's one of these games as we talk about a lot especially from kickstarter that has been designed but hasn't been fully developed and could have done with that whole finishing process of a year or two that queen games would have done it or someone like that as we've been hearing from our designer friends they take a game of you and they go away and 18 months later you get it back and they go we've polished this here you go (laughs) so i think the shadow westminster could have done with that process like i say sean i'm not ready to give up on it just yet i'd love for us to get it out Four people around the table, 50-50 Betrayer, and let's see how the game really works in sort of optimal circumstances. The fact that it needs optimal circumstances is just a little bit of a shame. It is a shame. Yeah, as you said, it needed a lot of work. Like, the cards are just too dark. The board's really dark. It's very hard to even pick things out on the board. You need a really bright light, which kind of goes against the theme of the game. Almost every facet of the game just needed to be finished and tweaked that little bit. I'm not going to give up on it either, Ronan. And we will have that four-player game, and the cavil will be coming down after that four-player game, whether I keep it or or get rid. So that was the Shadow of Westminster. Okay, this is another Kickstarter game, Sean. You've you've poisoned me. Yeah. I've become infected. But this one I didn't buy, at least. <laughs> it's Project Elite. 2016 release from Artipia and notably Draw Lab. It's for one to four players. It's a 30 minutes suggested play time. There's a real time aspect to this. I think it's a bit longer than 30 minutes, but not that much longer. The designers are Constantinius Kokinis, who's done drum roll, and also he did New Dawn alongside Satirius Santillas, who, as well as doing New Dawn, did Archon and Briefcase. The story of Project Elite is that aliens have invaded the Earth. And Project Elite is this elite team of warriors, fighters, and they must help with fighting them off. And the way you're going to do this, as I mentioned, is by rolling dice in real time, but in broken up into rounds. And by rolling those dice, you can be moving around a grid. You're going to be shooting at the aliens. You're going to be trying to fulfill one of four different objectives. You might be blowing something up or rescuing something or repairing something. There's just different cards that say exactly what you're doing, but it's all very similar. First thing you do when you start playing Project Elite is you choose a character. Each of the characters have got slightly different powers, slightly different abilities. You choose a side of the board to set up. You've got an indoor board kind of in a lab and you've got an outdoor board as well. You choose where spawn points are going to be. You then draw two gear for each player and then you divvy up the gear between you and the gear is going to be weapons that lets you shoot. There's going to be armor, there's going to be different bits of equipment and they're all going to be triggered by dice during your game. The setup card will tell you how many alien cards you're going to reveal, where they spawn on the map. 
And in terms of aliens, and throughout every round they're going to be spawning, so this is going to sound very similar each time we go through it, there are three basic types of aliens. There are biters who move along slowly, but if they're next to you, they're going to do damage to you. There are runners that move quickly, but don't necessarily directly attack you. And there are shooters that move slower, but they can shoot you from up to three spaces away. There are also bosses, which will come out periodically during the game, the number depends on how hard you've made the setting. There are also special aliens that are going to come out. And they're all kind of dinosaur themed, all the basic ones. They look like reptilian and that's the feel you get from them. Although in some cases reptiles with guns, which is a little bit scary. When they spawn on a site on the board, they move along certain paths, but there are limited choices to the where they move, and it's down to players to move them. So each box might have two or three arrows out of it as to where the alien can go from there. And you're deciding where they want to go, and they're all trying to move along and get into your start space. And if they're in your start space at the end of a turn, you're going to have lost. So you have to be very careful. They also, when they move, they bump into each other and push each other along. And mostly, when they bump into a player's figure on the board, they're going to cause damage to that player's figure. And we'll discuss damage in a second. In a round, the players are going to look at how the board is set up, where the aliens are at that current time. Then they've got two minutes to roll four dice. And the four dice have obviously got different sides on them. One of them lets yourself move. The other one lets you shoot your weapons. Now, different weapons require different numbers of the, the gun symbol on the dice to fire they'll show you on there how they do it if you do fire a gun it will tell you how many of your to hit dice to roll which are just big green d6 and also what number you have to roll on each of them to hit so very simple rules as it has to be for a real-time dice rolling game but the iconography is cool you can see what you're doing you know exactly what you're doing i roll three dice everything four or over hits zombicide-esque and lots of other games-esque the other symbol you can get is a spanner, which is a U symbol. That allows you to use different equipment. It could possibly trigger off using weapons. Now, some of those U symbols and even the weapons are one-off uses. So if you're four dice, if you put the dice in there, that dice is then locked for the rest of the game. There's kind of an interesting thing. The game, sorry, the round. And there's kind of an interesting thing there whereby I want to use that bit of equipment, but I don't want to lose that dice yet. How long have we got to go? You need to keep an eye on the timer. Okay, 20 seconds to go. I think I can lose a dice now, right? I don't want to do it with a minute and a half to go. Other things you can do is there's a fix symbol. It might be part of the game that you need to fix some piece of equipment. There's a search symbol. You can use it in the start place in order to get more equipment out. There's also, however, one of the faces is an alien move. Now, I said the aliens move on their own, but every time you roll a move thing for the aliens, they're going to move along the path. They're going to push others, possibly, and it changes the line of sight to other people where you're standing. You're trying not to bump them into another member of the team because they're going to take damage. As you're doing all this... You have to consider the alien abilities because if anyone ends up next to those biters, they're going to take a bite of them. If you end up too close to a shooter, they're going to shoot at you. So you might want to take the shooters out and then run away from them, depending upon what weapon you've got. Some are short range, some are long range. And all that thinking is going on and you're chatting to each other. After you finish that two minutes, the aliens are going to move and you check to see whether you've won or they've lost. Your win condition is going to differ, but generally have you filled up enough cards with dice in some way on the board and are there no aliens in the start area if any one character dies then you've lost the game now the way that damage happens is every time you take a damage you take one health token off your card and generally you've got three and once you lose three you lose one if your dice for the rest of the game you're down to three lose another three health you've lost another dice when you're on your last dice you lose three health that's it you're out and the whole team have lost 
Bosses have got loads of life, as you'd expect, and they've got special abilities. They might make aliens around them quicker, or they might make everything attack twice, or, or they're very hard to kill. Like every alien, apart from the special ones, has got one HP. Bosses can have nine or something crazy like that. So you really have to focus yourself on: Do we have to take that out, or have we got too much to do down here? What we're thinking about the goal. There's time to plan before the round, but when you're rolling, it's all very fast and furious. There are also event cards that can happen during the game. That depends upon, again, the difficulty you've chosen. So, Sean, it will sound to people a lot like Escape the Curse of the Temple, the other kind of famous dice rolling game. I know you weren't the biggest fan of that. Any thoughts on Project Elite? Well, I had a strong, strong look at this, Ronan, when it did come out on Kickstarter, as you'd probably imagine. A uh, game involving miniatures and heavily themed. Of course, I was going to have a look at it. And I was with them all the way. The finger was hovering over the, the buy button or the back button. And then I saw that real-time dice rolling. The finger was withdrawn. The finger was firmly placed in said pocket. And was never, <laughs> never taken out again for this game. It was taken out again about a day later for some other game. For some other game, for this game, it was never even thought about taking out again. I really don't like that mechanism. Even though I know you're just doing it in sort of short two-minute bursts in this game. But yeah, other than that, I love everything about this game. Nice sort of tower defense thing going on and sort of trying to plan your moves and got to work out what you're going to pick off next. And you've got that sort of siege mentality going on. Love it. Love it. Love the look of the game. The artwork looks great. The miniatures are okay. Hey. I think from from afar, <laughs> from afar, I think the artwork looks looks good and the miniatures looked okay. For no, me. the artwork looks okay. The, mini- the miniatures. Oh, okay, well from from afar, I've not played the game because I <laughs> you, won't play. Did you hear game. the story about these miniatures? No, go on, enlighten they me. They turned up at Essen last year. I didn't know this story until I played the game and people were telling me. Turned up at Essen last year and they were literally blobs. People just looked at them and went, what is that? Oh, and they refused that. to take their game. I'd heard the story. I hadn't put two and two together. Yeah, and put the game same here. It. They refused to take their game. They said, I've paid for this game. I paid for S and Pickup. I am not taking that. That's how bad they were. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, i tell a little story. When I was about 12, a friend of mine's dad was like an engineer and he had like a workshop at the bottom of the garden and we used to play like 40k and stuff. We used to make miniatures. We'd make molds off miniatures and then pour the stuff in ourselves and make them. And obviously they were awful. They were better than the minis that they put here when I was 12 with no talent making my own molds. <laughs> They're shocking. Absolutely shocking. Now, I play with the alleged better minis and they're also shocking they are rubbish you can barely see what they are they are not good enough to be in a board game now i do need to clarify something here okay artipia are the more famous publishing partners of the pair and it's the guys who are behind artipia who designed it however for the miniature side of it draw lab entertainment themselves have come out and said it was entirely down to us we were in charge of the miniatures process. Nothing to do with Artipia. This is all to us. So that's something that needs to be made clear, I think, and other people need to, to realise because Artipia are getting a lot of heat. But if I were Artipia, I would hope the contract was good enough for me to be able to turn around to them and say, no, just no. That is not good enough. The alien minis are shocking. You cannot tell the difference 
between different types of monsters and they act in different ways and it's important and you need to know it's kind of thematic because you're playing this real-time game that you kind of get a glimpse of the corner of your eye was that a biter or a shooter but they look awful well, is it? Because you've got the real time, and one of the results on the dice, you have to quickly move a monster. So you need to know what, what direction that monster can move in and what you're moving, really, because you, you've got to decide. And then that's going to push other ones, and you need to know what they are. You need to know if you're putting a shooter within three range of someone else or not. And you need to tell that person, that's a shooter, be careful. Oh, really awful, awful miniatures. We're going to move on from there. Other than to say they're awful. Now, now I see why Rado used Jen's glass miniatures. <laughs> <laughs> that might be why. Might it wasn't actually. a free plug at all. Don't worry about that. <laughs> okay. You know, with Escape, you know that you don't like the real-time dice rolling thing. Did you find that the longer the round went on, the less you enjoyed it? Or was it just the whole thing you didn't like? Just the whole thing. I mean... I've tried to sort of work out why I don't like it so much. There's obviously the stress angle and there's obviously the chaos angle, but I think also it's, I like when I'm rolling dice, I like everyone to be watching almost like because exhibition, exhibition. Yeah. In Eldritch horror, yeah, everyone's watching because they're hoping you roll well in a game, in a game where you're against people. Actually not in Eldritch horror. It's funny. Well, okay. It's funny when it all goes wrong, but in, in a game where you're against it, everyone's thinking, Oh, please don't roll it. And like you in firefly, please roll a one. <laughs> and which always happens. And it, it's hilarious. But in this, nobody sees it. You roll a wicked roll. You, you can't stand up to admire it or say, look at that. Look at what I just rolled. And you just have, no, okay, I've rolled that now. Let's roll again. Oh, no, and I've rolled that again. Let's roll again. And I just don't like it. It's not a mechanism that sits well with me. I understand why people like it, but yeah, just not for me. You're a rogan. Okay. What I felt with this is it is nowhere near as frantic and allegedly stressful (laughs) as Escape. Because in Escape, you have to do your planning. And you have to do your rolling at the same time. And as you're rolling, new information's coming out, new tiles are coming out, new priorities and what have you. And you're trying to roll quickly and talk to each other and plan as you go. What they've done with this one, which I think worked really well, is that the planning all comes before you start rolling. Because that board is only going to change from alien moves. The only thing that's going to happen while you're rolling. So you can even talk about that and go, okay, the priority is not to push these ones because they're runners. They'll be within striking distance of the base. So... All the movement needs to come down that side or what have you. But you can talk about it and decide together and go, okay, what's our priority for the next two minutes? And there's eight rounds in the game. So it it split up that much. You go, what's our priorities? Cool. I'll do this. I'm bus. He can be near the aliens and not get damaged. I'll go in there. You've got that kind of sniper rifle weapon. You hand back. When we move monsters, we will move them down that channel so that you have got a constant flood of aliens coming your way okay you two are going to go to repair that great what do we need to do to take keep off your back you can have that conversation nice and calm and easy and then you start rolling as you're rolling you're not so much making decisions as following through the plan you've already made yeah i can see how it is thematic as well but i do see like you get these waves of aliens coming at you as in Xeno shift or something like that and you do feel like you're up against it and it's all happening very fast and you've got to try and have a vague outline of a plan yeah i get it i I get the thematic side of that and if you like real-time dice rolling then i think this fits in perfectly with the theme of this game there's no way i can talk you into playing this game i'll play it 
I like the fact that it is only going to be in two-minute bursts. I will enjoy the planning. I will enjoy the discussion. I just won't enjoy that two minutes. You're a wrong one. This game is streamlined. It's smooth. It makes sense. You have to plan well. And it completely works. It delivers on the theme. It's a really good game. I, I recommend Project Elite as long as you don't mind those shocking minis. And Bus is by far the best character to roleplay. That's all I have to say on that. Okay, we're going on to our second Italian-themed game of the, this show. And this is Signori. And the Signori is set in 15th century Italy. You will play as a Signore, a lord of a prestigious family. And you're going to be looking to marry off all the female children of the family to powerful families and send the males on diplomatic missions to aid those same families in order to win yourself power and influence and your family, of course. So each round, a number of dice can be rolled in five colours with the amount of dice matching the player counts. One dice of each colour can be used by each player and you can use up to four of these dice in total. Uh, but there's a cost to attach to each die. The number on the dice will pay either some or all of the cost, depending on, obviously, the result on the die and the cost attached to it, with the remainder being paid in money. So it basically means that the higher value dice mean that you spend less money. However, each round, there's a really powerful reward for anybody who keeps all the pips on their dice totals to 13 or under why are you trying to get these dice well each of them allows a certain number of actions that are either fixed on your player boards upgradable again on the player boards or on the central area and these are going to change each round the things you can do with the dice range from placing the males of your family on a career track you can marry off your your females you can make more money, you can get more females and males, and there's, there's loads of things to do. I'm not going to go through them all. A lot of the scoring takes place in the game by actually doing these marrying off and on diplomatic missions, etc. And at the end of the game, you're going to score from some set collections with the crests of the families that you have influenced in the game, adding up to score you some extra points. That, in a nutshell, is Signori Ronan been on your list i remember after looking on your wish list a while back and seeing it it has it was on my wish list for quite a while actually yeah it certainly was and the reason is because of the publisher of what's your game i am always interested in what they're bringing out they bring out slightly thinkier euro games not necessarily in the style of euro game that i like as in there's tend to be those multiple small moves in order to achieve something at the end of it but always got my eye on them so, starting off on that branch, their previous game that this has been compared to most is Jean Gros. That hasn't got dice and it's got cards which you select and you can do multiple things with each card, although there's a limited number of things you can do. You've played that, Sean. How would you compare it to Jean Gros? First off, Ronan, I completely forgot to even say it was a What's Your Game game. And That's just, all right, I'm picking up what you're dropping. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no, no you, you're covering me, man, you're covering me. So <laughs> to point out that it's uh, Andrea Chiavesio and Pierluca Zizi are the designers of this one. <laughs> just just get it out there. Right, uh, Zhang Guo and this. I think that they are similar in terms of depth and difficulty. Signori 
it's, it's a lot more about your own path. The only thing you can be blocked out in is in that dice selection, but there's always ways to mitigate against that or to to watch what other people might select. But I think with Zhangro, there's a lot of places where you can be sort of usurped or, or people can really mess with you a little bit. I think some of the, the mechanisms themselves are quite similar, but I think, yeah, Zhangro's a bit meaner. Mm, yeah, you, you can block each other's anger, beat each other to goals and stuff like that. I, I see what you're saying. The other thing that's said about Signori is that it's it generally said to be a slow burner and that four plays in, people then start to, to dig it. The problem I have with slow burners, and sometimes I call games a slow burner, uh, actually I'm going to in this episode, but anyway, is that if you're playing the game four times, you're probably predisposed to like it. So it always makes me slightly sort of reluctant. But did you see it there that with more plays, as people understand it better, it's going to really start to blossom? I kind of got it straight away because I'd done a bit of research on it. I I had a general idea of what was happening and why it was happening. But there's a fog in this game. You you can't really see what things are going to do towards the end of the game until you try them and you see how it works out for you. That's a bit of a what's your game thing yeah yeah you've got to make your mistakes and you've got to get your bit of luck here and there on on the journey and then you finally realize what everything actually does for you when you're starting off that game and that's why it probably is a slow burner and i thought i think that's another watch your game thing in that it lures you in because you think i can play that better next time i can play that better next time i can improve on that next time and they've got that kind of gamer crack to them for sure I th- the other sort of and I know I am comparing this to all those other games because there's the, definitely a family of games there but one of the criticisms leveled or the high wire that they tiptoe along and some fall on one side and some fall on the other f- for players is that it's a lot of simple things you're doing but those simple actions have been made complicated because of the number of moving parts that are going on and it's that old input to output question of all these small things I'm doing, is it worth what I'm getting out of the end? What did you feel about that? This whole game is all about balancing, as you said, all those small little moving parts. You're going to drop some, but making sure that the important ones don't drop and not too many drop. Like I mean, you have, you're trying not to take so much money by, by taking the higher dice, but at the same point, the end of game bonuses are really good, so you really want to try and keep under that 13 mark. Uh, do you upgrade your player boards where do you upgrade your player boards what are other people looking for do you try and take stuff just to annoy them a little bit that you've got to keep on top of your supply of males and females what houses are you going to influence how far up the career track are you going to go and it just keeps going you try and catch everything you're going to do nothing in this game before we get on to your final thoughts i am going to say something that it's actually taken this off my wish list because i came across this now this is from various gamers who've been talking about the game needs variants for it to work properly and to be very good now there are different suggestions on bgg one of them's from a guy and i peter duckworth and he suggested three rules variants to improve it and that's just too many that's why i'm looking at this and he's saying that with three or four players you have to play one fewer round because the game just dies and it loses all arc and excitement in the last round. It's saying if a city fills up, you have to be able to score marriage and diplomatic missions in there anyway, otherwise it kills people. And also the alliance tiles can just get moribund and you have to wipe them at the end of each round to make sure people have things that they actually want to go for. He said it, other people have said it, people whose opinions I trust say it. Now, 
if they're saying that you have to put in three variants just to make it into a game that really works and has good pacing and there's things for you to even do towards the end, that really gets me worried. Well, addressing the, the cities filling up first, that's a part of the game. You've got to pick and choose when you go into these cities and you've got to watch what other people are trying to collect because each person has a, a different combination of crests that, that they will score on. So you've got to watch what they're trying to do and you've got to, it's a game of timing. Now, whether the game dies on its bottom towards the end, if you don't take out a round in the higher player counts, I'm not sure. I can see it possibly being the case because it is one of those games that you do build up, you build up and you build up. And then by the end, you've got your engine in place and everything's singing to you nicely. But I still don't think it's a reason to change the game unless you really want to. I think it, it works just fine. So I'm not sure about those variants, Ronan. Mm, I'm not sure about the game. Go on then, Sean. Give us your final thoughts on Signori. I just think it was a really interesting main mechanism in choosing those dice. It was a balancing act, and I really enjoy games where it's a balancing act. I thrive on stuff like that. I think you have got player interaction there, looking at each other's game, so there's not really that much downtime because someone might take something you want or go in an area that you want to go in. And I just enjoyed the game, Ronan. I thought it was a good deeper game than people think it is and i think it's a strong addition to the what's your game range and i'm already a fan of their games cool beans well coming up next you have our big review of tyrants of the underdark Okay, we are now on to our main review, and here's Ronan with a rule summary of Tyrants of the Underdark. Of the Underdark. This is from 2016. It is from both Wizards of the Coast and Gale Force Niners publishers, two to four players, up to 60 minutes. This one was designed by Peter Lee, who designed the D&D adventure system, and Conquest of Nerath. He also co-designed Dungeon Command and Laws of Waterdeep with Rodney Thompson, who designed this, and new designer Andrew Veen. Each of players represents a drow house who is about to start a war and vie for control of the Underdark, which in the D&D universe is the underground realm home of the Dark Elves, the Drow. The game itself is all about building up a deck of cards, Dominion Styli, and using those deck of cards to both get better cards, to add troops to the board, you'll be looking to promote your cards to your inner circle to score more points, and obviously it being a civil war, you're going to be killing enemies. The board itself is laid out in areas which are connected by links and each area has a variable number of areas which troops can go into. The board is split into three areas. You play with just middle area for two players. There are two flanks and you add one flank for three players and obviously both of them for four. Some of these areas on the board you're going to be contesting are key areas and they will give you both income in terms of influence to purchase cards and also possibly VP income each turn and they are larger and they have artwork and they're quite clear to see. The board also starts with some white troops on there. White is not a player colour, it represents the sitting troops which are there controlling the Underdark before the game begins and they're an obstacle to players for taking control of areas. You begin your deck as usual in a deck builder with some basic cards, 
Seven of them are going to give you influence, which will allow you to purchase cards. There's always a market of six cards available of varying cost and varying effects in the game. Not a set market. These cards will be made from an 80 card deck, which is made up of two separate 40 card decks, which are shuffled up. And they have got various powers on them. Just quickly back to the other basic card. That gives you power. And the amount of power you have lets you either place troops for one power or kill a troop on the board where you have presence for three power. Having presence basically means that you need to be in that area or adjacent to it to be able to influence it. Now, I said that you mix up two decks in order to make the main market deck for each game. They come in four different themes and you choose two to put together. The themes are Drow, Dragons, Elementals and Demons. And they vary slightly in the type of cards you can have in there. Overall, the sorts of things they're going to do, as well as giving you more of the two basic currencies, influence and power, they give you things like the ability to place and remove spies. Spies will give you presence in an area when your troops are not adjacent to it. And they'll also prevent someone else from having total control of an area because your spy is in there undermining them. They also give you various powers for having a spy in place. And you don't have to build them from where you are. They can go anywhere on the board and they're kind of like your, your long-range missile. You're firing in there to cause trouble. Other cards have got power such as Promote. I mentioned your Inner Circle earlier. Each card in your deck is going to be worth VPs, but if you manage to promote it to your Inner Circle, you both take it out of your deck, so it's a form of thinning. Also, though, you might promote better cards because they'll score you more points from in that Inner Circle, but they won't be available to you for the rest of the game. There are Devour Powers, which... As they say, just devour a card, it gets thrown down into the Val Piles out of the game forever. There are assassinations, which can assassinate other people's troops on the board as long as you're next to them, which are usually more efficient than spending three of your power each turn to remove one troop at a time. They also have supplant powers, and that lets you both take a troop off the board and replace it with one of your own troops. can be very powerful. In terms of theme, the Drow deck is more about spies and promoting and assassination a bit sneakier. The Dragons deck has got five main dragons in there, and they'll score you VPs throughout the game. And they have Wormlings, which are cheaper cards, which basically build up to do what that dragon will score you points for. It's quite balanced, but mostly more about control of the board as opposed to deck building, which is slightly more what the Drow are like for promotion. Those are the two basic ones that you're recommended to start with. Quickly, the Elementals and Demons. The Elementals have a new thing, the others don't, which is called Focus. There are card types in there, Malice, Guile, Ambition. They're just words on the cards. They do kind of have a thematic link to them, and they will allow you to focus off cards of the same type. So you can start building up some synergies. And the Demons, they bring in something called Insane Outcasts, which are sort of dead cards in your deck. They're also minus one point at the end of the game. They clog up your hand, and you can sometimes take them yourself to trigger powerful effects, or obviously you can give them to other players. And it's sort of another way of attacking each other, more to your deck. But what Demons do, as well as bringing the Insane Outcasts, they are much more focus on that devour power so it's possible to take insane outcasts to yourself and then devour them from your demons to fuel their powers which feels kind of thematic to me the game will play until either someone's placed their last troop out on the board or the deck runs out you'll finish the final round for where the first player was and you're going to get your vps and your vps are each site on the board has got a vp value for whoever controls it that means you have more troops there than everyone else combined you get a bonus of two points for each place you have total control in. That is, there are no other pieces of someone else's colour or the white troops or a spy in that place, in that site. Only you. 
you have a trophy hall. Every troop that you kill, be it another player's or a white troop, that's going to score you one point. Your cards in your deck, the cards you promoted you in a circle, any VP tokens you've been able to gain from controlling the main sites. That is Tyrants of the Underdark. Sean, how does it look? Right, we're going to start <laughs> with that board, Ronan. Are we? <laughs> Let's just get it out of the way. I would say that it is strikingly ugly. Oh! I think that's been nice. <laughs> Words like horrific and disgusting are <laughs> all coming into mind. Well, functional. I, I've seen more glamorous flowcharts at work. <laughs> it's kind of this purpley, hazy, violet-y artwork that doesn't really look like artwork it just looks like a bit of a mess of colors and then the sites themselves are just purely functional apart from the main ones which also have this kind of artwork that looks a bit hazy and doesn't really fit the theme it's a bit ah fairy-esque isn't it sean it's it's just bizarre like what (laughs) just a massive misstep i just don't understand like we have a flowchart at work for helping us fix trains on the on the hoof, and that one is is, is prettier than this. And it, this is a game where you've got all this world that you can borrow from, and you've got this board. There's no correlation from that to the cards. With card art, is actually nice. Yeah, most of it is. It's a little bit spotty in places, but most of the card art actually looks pretty good. The other thing is the troops for each player are represented by a shield now the shields are slightly different designs but the red and orange are two player colors they're pretty close the blue and black two player colors they're pretty close and they're very abstracted i was surprised when i opened it and my troops were little shields i don't mind that because i understand that this troop can are your shields and that you're collecting those trophies as well, and they look good as, as trophies. They're a little bit fiddly for my liking, but I, I understand that, and having the different types of shield makes me think, oh, okay, you, they've stepped up. If I hadn't seen the board and saw that first, I'd be very hopeful for the board. Very really? Hopeful. Yeah, because the fact that you've got different shapes of shields. And really minorly different, different. I know, but still, it looks like they've paid attention to detail. But then you go to the board and you just realise that somebody's 12-year-old's knocked it up on Excel or something. <laughs> you might need to stop going on about the board. The last thing I'll say about the artwork and the look is it is consistent with the other D&D games, which means it's not great. It's got like, you know, the Adventure System games, it's got that functional card look to it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's all here just to do a job as opposed to wow you. It's not fantasy flight, but the cards themselves are beautiful. This is very functional. It's all very right angly and straight lines and not a lot of colour. But then you've got the actual art involved, which which is easy because you've got a wealth of, of artwork from D&D worlds. And I'm pretty sure I saw some that have been used in other games and other licenses and all sorts. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. But that, that's no bother at all. So what about the quality of the components Sean as opposed to how they look this game is 50 pounds retail in the UK did you think it was it was bang for bucks no 
the cards <laughs> the cards are a bit flimsy. Your copy, what is your copy? Probably been paid 10 times, 12 times, that sort of time range. And the cards are starting to get a bit frayed around the edges. They feel a bit flimsy to the touch. The shields are a little bit fiddly and the, the colours, again, to really close together. There's nothing about this whole production that screams lavish to me at all. I think you're a trifle uh, harsh on things. <laughs> strident there. A trifle strident on the old cards there. <laughs> Having the black edges to cards is a bad idea at any time because you get that white fleck in. It's just what happens. And on black edge cards, it shows up really quickly. I think for the price point, now I know the price of the games are going up. That's cool. We all appreciate that. I think there's probably not enough content. There's just four decks of 40 cards in terms of gameplay i know you've got the basic cards and stuff like that so there's not a huge amount probably the quality of that board is part of it because you look at it and you don't feel like i've paid those money for a beautiful piece of art i expected probably better soldiers physically for what you're getting I, i think you're right i think it's a bit of a disappointment but i'm not quite as harsh on the cards as you are I actually think you get plenty of cards. I, I, really? I, yeah, I find that there's always a choice of card in the market coming out that's new. There's hardly any doubles go in there. 80 in a deck. You've always got your staples in the House Soldiers and the Priestess of Lolf that you can always pick up. So that was okay. And there's there's lots of combinations to be had with just those four decks. I thought that was... Okay. I think you're inching into gameplay we are, as opposed we are. to yeah, yeah. number of cards you get. Like physical components. Mm. Yeah, maybe a bit, a bit light, but everything else was yeah higher in my beef count. <laughs> You've got quite the beef count going on. <laughs> How did you feel like it conveyed the theme? Did you ever feel like you were in Underdark as a uh, a powerful demon or anything like that? In terms of components, although I've moaned about them, what it does for me is the shields on the board. You can see how someone's building up their sphere of influence. And you can see where people are. And that actually provides a thematic sense to me in that I can look at the board and see that we're starting with nothing and that the white troops are out and there's kind of peace and everything's under control. And the more we eat away the white troops, the more we sort of go along these tendrils of paths to the sites because you have to go along chains, two, three, four spaces to get in between each major site. You can see that these influence is spreading across the board. When the spies start dropping into places, you can say, oh, that red spy is there. Suddenly you might see one or two red troops in the middle of where there were no red troops. They're kind of starting an insurgency somewhere and, and, and fighting back. The military strategy of the Boar Control to me comes through. And that's where I think the functional look works. In terms of feeling like, do I feel like a demon or a drow or whatever? I think that comes in card effects and gameplay. Some of them are more thematic than others. I was a bit let down by the dragons. They really didn't feel like dragons to me. They felt like VP machines as opposed to I wanted them to be kind of get in there and set fire at something, you know, kill all the troops in the area as long as you have presence, which means you're killing your own and someone else's and stuff like that. That would have been awesome. Yeah, I think we're kind of coming at it from the same angle. I felt like there was actually a little bit of theme in there. It just wasn't immediately apparent. You had to peel away a few layers before that theme started coming through to some degree. One thing I did think worked absolutely fine was the iconography it's it's very simple you've only got the two icons it's easy to see across the table what other people have got in front of them when they're laying down their cards and the keywords are all very simple very intuitive there's nothing difficult to pick up about this game at all is there 
Yeah, it's fantastically easy to teach, probably because the gameplay isn't that massively innovative, which we're going to come on to. But exactly what you said, the game terms all made sense. Supplant, I take you out and put myself in. Assassinate, you die. Devour, that card's out of here. All makes sense, right? It's not, I fashangle my katunkle. It's, I assassinate your troop. Iconography, brilliant. In terms of ease of play, the components really work. And I do think that is a top-notch area of this game. Ease of teaching and ease of play. I've told you to leave your katunkle alone. Shh. Family show. (laughs) (laughs) So, this has been sold as not just a deck builder, not just an air control game, but an unholy spider-drow marriage of the two, Sean. Does it work? Yes, I think it does. I think it is almost 50-50. So if you ignore the deck building, you won't be able to manipulate the board as well. If you ignore the board, then you're going to be picked apart, lose position to strike at others and to score points. So I think by hook or by crook, they've got this one spot on. There's some kind of nice balance and push and pull because that area control means it's much more conflict heavy than your usual deck builder where you don't really care what someone else is doing in this case it's much easier to spread out your power early there are fewer troops on the board the white troops can't fight back you're unlikely to be right next to someone else early on so you're avoiding resistance to do that you're improving the amount of power in your deck but that means that you're not necessarily improving the amount of influence in your deck, which is deck building. So if you go for the influence and deck build, great, your deck might be better later on in the game, but you've lost out on some easy points, and it's quite hard, especially with more players on the board, to take out a troop and replace it and then start grabbing areas from people. And also, there are different ways to go down to score points, but if I go down the deck building route and you look at me and you think, oh, he's getting a lots of promotion cards and lots of influence cards. He's clearly going for, for something with his deck. You might look at the board and go, well, he's to my right. Person to the top is maybe taking more balance strategy. Well, I'm just going to fire off to the right because he can't fight back. He hasn't got as much power as I have. Uh, and it, even the two-play game, that becomes more so. But I do like the fact that what other people are doing can influence what's going to work best for you and the timing of it all. They work seamlessly together, and that sort of makes them greater than the sum of their parts. For what they, what it lacks in beauty, it makes up in just the, the seamless interaction of mechanics. I do like that the area control is controlled, because these areas are not flat, flush onto each other. There are those chains. There are generally smaller, minor areas between the bigger, bigger point scorers. So you can't just get attacked on all sides. You can see where people are coming from, and you can kind of control where your fronts are. It's in fitting with the debt building with it because debt building, you get the card and it's going to take a while for it to come out two or three times to have a real influence on the game. And in the area control is controlled like that as well. To me, the balancing and the pacing works that way round. There are other key mechanisms they've thrown in. Add a bit of spice to the mixture, Sean. Key mechanisms that are good and are bad. I'm going to start with spies. How do you think spies worked? I think that they added to the balance of the game i think if you didn't have spies then people could hem themselves in and uh, reap rewards and there's not too much you can do about it without getting a card that says you move someone from one spot to another or that kind of thing i think spies it almost keeps people honest it works thematically 
I actually think it's a very important mechanism. And you've also got the other side of Spies Ronin, where you've got cards that place them, but those same cards often say, take it away for a bonus as well. So they're a way of getting more cards or more power into your hand as well. So I, I like them. Cool. Insane Outcasts, they're there to block you up, but they're not as annoying as these cards are in other games, like Curses and Dominion. With the Insane Outcasts, you've always got the ability to get rid of them, more or less. Because you can use a promotion to get rid of them, you can use a devour to get rid of them. So when you get them, they tend to slow you down just for one hand or two, as supposed to be that recurring nightmare. And I like it, kind of fits for me that they're not too irritating. I don't know, do you agree with that on the Insane Outcasts? They're not as bad as some of the other deck builders where they really just do mess your deck up. They're easy enough to get rid of if you really want to. This isn't particularly a key mechanism in the game, but it's just, I think this game, Ronan, has fantastically foul player interaction. Fantastically foul? Fantastically foul. I think. Go it... on, expand for me, alliterative <laughs> boy. The players are kind of thrown into this massive melting pot on the board and you have to fight your way to the top you have these focal points which are the cities i really like the these cities they're going to give you more power and they're going to give you points in game not maybe towards the end of the game because they tend to be worth less points at the end but in the game people who get them and defend them tend to score quite a few points from them and this is where the spies come in to keep them honest but yeah you're thrown together ronan and you you have to fight you have to be nasty to each other it's very hard to go through a game of this without fighting each other i can only agree that it conveys the theme perfectly you feel like you're in a war and the minute someone places a soldier and suddenly they've got presence in one of your areas you feel like right it's on now you've crossed that rubicon let's kick this off you're fighting to get present somewhere just to annoy someone you know the whole total control thing total control is only worth two points in an area so if someone puts one troop in that's not the issue i'm only losing two points for it the issue is now they've got presence which means all the cards in their hand can now activate in what i think is my area and and that's it you're kicking off you put one troop in with me you and me got beef you go into this game with your eyes wide open because especially in like a four-player game where you've got people in all corners there's not that much space so you know you're going to be in a fight but there's something about it, it does kind of get to you by the end. I don't think I've ever seen a game of this where it hasn't ended up in a little squabble at the end with someone saying, well, why are you constantly picking on me? There's other people, there's other targets. Yeah, but that's because I play it with you and my kids and Rachel and you'll pick on me and you're all mean people. I think that it can get slightly bogged down with four players and that's one of the things that they've got wrong in that. I Actually, I think that the board space isn't correct because the amount of spaces you add for the extra players doesn't equal up the board. So when you get to four players, it is quite tight and you do get bogged down and you can get in a situation of if I spend three power to kill your troop, I spend one more power to put one in. And then on your turn, you spend three power to kill my troop and spend one more to put it in. And we're just slowly niggling. We've gone into a war of attrition where with fewer players and in the early war, it's much more dynamic. Now we've got into sort of trench warfare and that's less fun. So one of the other things I think they got slightly wrong is that there's so much going on in each deck it can be hard to get card synergies consistently. Now, this is one of the issues that I have with any deck builder in which it's it's a parade of cards because 
They could all be high value. They could all be low value. They could all suit one strategy or the other. So you could have six or five or six cards come out that are all to do with spies. But I'm not building my deck around spies. I, I don't have enough cards to make them useful. And suddenly I haven't really got anything to buy. But that's, that is, for me, any deck builder that has a parade of cards is not my favourite. I totally see where you go. There's been many times where somebody just wants to promote things out of their deck and they just can't get hold of a promote card. And it's, it's certainly a concern, but I don't know. Have you got any ideas that you could change that in the game, Ronan? Oh, maybe we'll get to those later. Yeah, huh? oh. You did mention promotion, though. There's not a lot of games with that, with that use that mechanic. I know Valley of Kings had it a bit, but it was much quicker than that and a much smaller deck and you were just taking cards and getting rid of them. In this, I do love the delicious balance between shall I promote a decent card to get more points or shall I promote a rubbish card to change it from zero into one point? Because then my deck is better, but I've scored way fewer points for that same move. I never feel like I've got it exactly right. There are also those cool cards that say, like, promote the top card of your deck. And you don't know what it's going to be. And you're like, oh, it's Demogorgon, the best card in the deck. And I've just bloody promoted it by mistake. <laughs> or, woohoo, it's a, something rubbish that I wanted to promote. And at different times of games, different things are good for you. If it looks like it's the last round and you promote a dragon, but you're like, brilliant. That's now a seven or eight point card. I love the balance in promotion and the fact that thinning your deck is built into the game. Absolutely, and it kind of feels it feeds into my next point is that given that this is two simple game genres sort of thrown in together, do you feel that there are sort of paths you can do, go down, avenues you can explore, or are players on rails, so so to speak? Yeah, no, I don't think you are on, on rails. I think there are different strategies to explore. I think you have to see what cards come up early, how they're fitting in. Definitely be aware of what decks are in the game. Are you going to waste time fighting over those big cities? Because then it becomes a real struggle. And maybe you're giving someone else uh, the opportunity to snipe together loads of other areas, which will end up scoring them more points, as opposed to you're fighting over the big payoff, but getting nowhere. Uh, I think there is a lot to explore, actually. It's a thing about Gale Force 9, they tend to offer you the very basics of a game, but when you get into it, you realise actually there's way more than I thought would be in this game. I think every time, Ronan, we have played this game, there's always been a full discussion about what we've done, what we've done well, what we could have done better, and almost other people saying, well, I thought you were going to do this, and if you'd have done this, you'd have completely ruled me out, and I think you'd have won the game. And I love that. I love a game that matters so much to you that you want to discuss it after as, as well. One of the things I love about that, Sean, is that the game system is simple enough that we can actually chat about each other's strategies because we can see what you're trying to do. It doesn't mean we're doing the same thing as each other, though, but it means that what you're doing is quite clear. You know, I'm not trying to guess what you're doing i can see what you're doing it's my decision as how much i want to respond to that yeah and i think the choices aren't set in stone at all so there's different responses to what other people are doing so if somebody's turtling up there's a certain things you can look to do to them if somebody's attacking you you decide to either bite back regroup go a different path concentrate in a different area to get back at them a bit later build your deck there's lots of things you can do in direct response to what other people are doing as well and that isn't immediately obvious we're chatting here about there's ways to respond there's different strategies you have to be aware of what everyone else is doing it makes it sounds quite heavy but then we'll talk about the iconography and the simple system that leads to the question how heavy is it who is the game for i think 
your barrier to entry is is almost zero. I think the depth in it just comes from uh, how good are you at deck building, how good are you at area control, how good are you seeing things that are happening around you. I don't think new gamers will particularly good at melding the two together, but I think it's something that they can certainly learn and, and progress at. As for who it's for, not for couples. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. It's for couples. <laughs> but not for me and my wife anyway. We would, we would end up divorced with this game. You've got to enjoy that conflict, man. Get get your tensions out on the it's, board. Yeah, it lasts too long. It's just constant. It's, it's funny at the beginning. Then it becomes a bit, oh, okay, it's part of the game. Then it's like, all right, you've got to stop. <laughs> you've got to stop. You're really annoying me now. My, my thing with it is you can't mess with each other's deck too much, which is why I think it's good for new players. Although you can get messed around on the board, you can see what's going on on the board, and it hasn't got that much sneakiness. I probably wouldn't play with demons, with the instant outcast and the devouring and all that, with very new players to games. But certainly, if someone had never played before and they showed an interest in games, I, I think Bring Out Titans and Luck can show them a real positive side of gaming and what is there. We've talked earlier about how it is with four players and maybe not as aggressive with two and three. What is the best player count for this? A two-player game is much more immediate. It's better to learn the structure and how the game works and to see the depth in there because you can see every card they buy, then you know that card's in the deck. That's harder to follow the way you get more players. It's also very quick, two-player. Once you know the game, a two-player game can last half an hour especially if someone goes military and just spams out their troops because there's more space on the board. They can spam out and actually get all their troops out without it getting bogged down. Each edition tightens that up. Each edition means you've got less choice in the market because cards are getting taken away from you. So therefore you can kind of be less selective in your deck building. Like two players can be just hitting laser guiding a strategy with more, you kind of have to be more aware. You can't give away too much space. You have to promote a bit. You have to do a bit of this and a bit of that. So I don't think four is ideal for new players and i think with four players i may take five troops each away possibly even 10 probably five because then you know the game's going to finish and, you, and you're not going to have that horrible in game yeah i think four for me is best with that uh, house rule phone in yeah definitely at least five needs to be taken away I think four players gives you a bit more options. You're not just constantly battering on the same door. You've got to be more mindful of who's sneaking round and who might be attacking you in their next go. So definitely four players is a more interesting game. Also a nastier game. I think with two players, you have to attack each other. There's no choice involved there. Four players, that's when the squabbles come in because like... Why put a spy on me? You gave me three insane outcasts last time. Yeah, yeah. Spy on him. Who should I give an outcast to? Him! Him! Give it to him! (laughs) You have to be nasty to someone. And people do take it a bit personally. Sometimes, usually Ronan, when everybody gives him an insane. Why you got to treat me like that? (laughs) But yeah, four players, I think, definitely the most interesting, so therefore the best. So, Ronan, what are the comparisons out there to it? I couldn't come up with that many, surprisingly, but I came up with... I could hardly come up with any. I came up with a handful. A few acres of snow is obvious. It's only a two-player game. It's very tight. It's a much smaller deck. It's much harder to do things. But it has a bit of that feel. You are deck building, you are fighting over areas, and you are attacking each other. That obviously got expanded to Mythotopia. Problem with that being, I think that was during the Tree Frog money panic, and I don't think it was developed properly, and Mythotopia only works with variants. Good basis of a game there, but it needed more work. It was rushed out the door. So there's two I could think of, Sean. 
Have you got any? I've got one or two more. Not really, not really that actually work with those two mechanisms together. The two that I had in mind were the ones you've just said, but the ones I kind of thought if they were thrown together themselves would be Ascension and Conquest and Nera, that kind of thing. Not as in-depth as either, but the deck building had the feel of Ascension with, to me with those two main powers and a bit of variety going on and the... But people have said Ascension, right? But Ascension's two things were two similar things that could screw you up. I hate the money system in the yeah, century. Yeah, I know, I know. I know you didn't like it. Uh, at, at least the two things here are, are completely different. Yeah. And you know that if you go for power, you're going for control on the board. Not, I've got loads of red. Oh, there's no red cards out. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before I go to the last one I could think of was Princes of Dragon Throne. Is that at yeah. all similar? Yeah, yeah. I've only played that game once myself. I do own it. And yeah, it's not so much the deck building side, but it's very much the area control and the way that the areas are taken over and the sort of infighting over key areas on the board. So yeah, that's definitely something that itself's got similarities to. The only other one I had, and it was another one that's slightly undercooked, was City of Remnants. The sci-fi one from Plaid Hat Games, which... Oh, I've not played that, so... Yeah, it did feel similar, but it had too many problems with it it didn't actually completely work as a game but that that was it really which is funny it's one of those games isn't it that's come out and you go why has someone not done it before it mm. seems so obvious and it seems to be what they're doing with D&D games they're just taking a genre and doing simplicity and making it work Conquest and Aerith worked the Avengers System games work Lords of Waterdeep it's a work placement game but it works mm. this works it seems to me that obviously they've got a lot of money behind them Wizards of the Coast they are giving these games time to be developed, be polished, smooth it all off, and give you a finished product. And I'm really starting to believe in their line of products. I completely agree. But this gaming world of ours, Ronan, it does like an expansion. <sighs> I do like an expansion, Sean. And, and How... let's face it, for Wizards of the Coast games, they like an expansion. They like an expansion. How do you see this one in the future uh, in terms of expansions? And is there any changes you would like to see to the base game? Okay, so easy peasy for expansion. New decks, obviously. For sure. New pieces. Currently, you've got soldiers and you've got spies. You can add other things in there that, that work in some different way. New maps, whereby the battle's taken to somewhere else. Yep. So it is very expandable. One of the things I was thinking about, possibility of events, whereby the white troops fight back. As in, you started this war and then the forces that be are now fighting back against you to make it tougher for everyone. Some spawn, some new white troops or whatever it might be. There's like kind of resistance to what you're doing. The possibility of outside invaders while this is going on. So, I don't know, the Dwergar invade or a bunch of mind flayers turn up or something and you have to deal with that as well as trying to win the board for yourself. Maybe. Yeah, 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 it'd have to be balanced though. And I don't know how you would balance that. Yeah, it couldn't be just, oh, I happen to be the one in the top right corner and that's where they showed up and I get screwed. Yeah, 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 for sure. I kind of thought maybe additions to the board to make it a little bit more spaced out with some interesting quirks. Like like the way Firefly did just expand the board and the universe, maybe for an extra player if need be. Different board layouts for sure. Maybe get some sort of tower defense mechanism in there where each person's got their own home city that can be defended and and they lose a rake of points if anyone manages to breathe reach that like spies not allowed etc mm-hmm. possibly powers for each of the, the factions yeah currently you've all got a name haven't you but it's yeah. just a color it's your not it's just a, yeah well it's a not very distinguishable color sometimes <laughs> um and possibly even different win conditions for, for each faction 
Yeah, yeah, just throwing it out there to see. I have got, I've got in there. Don't mess with simplicity too much. <laughs> yeah, true. I think yeah, we might be trying to sort of fix something that isn't broken with those. Well, they're just ideas, aren't they? You said improvements. Firstly, better components. Boom. Yeah. Oh well, yeah, board, board components. Yeah, for yeah. sure. The other thing that I said I don't like deck builders with a with a lineup. The epic variant for Thunderstone, which is becoming official, by the way, in Thunderstone Three, which is coming out. Okay. It was already in the rules, but it's coming out to be played as that only. Mm-hmm. Maybe here. Remember I said that sometimes it can be hard to get synergies because let's say I'm going for a demon strategy and I'm devouring and there's none of those out. Then actually there's times when you don't want to buy a card. You look at it and you go, no, there's nothing there that suits. And I haven't tried it, but if you had five piles, you put the Malice cards together, the Guile cards, the Ambition cards, and the web. So you always knew one of each of those was available. And generally, within Guile, you've got Spies. Generally, within Ambition, you've got Promotion cards. Would that maybe give you better control on your deck building? But I'm aware that I like sort of controlling games and be able to plan more. So I, I might try yeah. that one day. Yeah, to have more of an idea, because I know they're kind of tailored one way or the other, but what you can expect so you can plan a little bit better. Yeah, that would, that would certainly change it. I just, you know me, I'm a control freak. I want to be able to get exactly what I want in my deck. <laughs> Don't you just. <laughs> okay, Ronan, unless you've got anything further to say, I'm going to start with my final thoughts. Go for it. Okay, so Tyrants of the Underdark. I think it's a good game, but it could have been great. And it's not down to the mechanics. It's down to the awful and lazy design choices. And I, I really can't forgive that. I'll hold my hands up and say that, yeah, you know what? It's a little bit too nasty for my personal tastes. But I think that other people will absolutely love the infighting in this one. The deck building is fun. The area control is exciting. The interaction is obvious and easy you don't have to work at it and the choices are varied enough to keep the interest up however the awful board makes this almost completely abstract for me i don't really see too much theme other than the ones that you crowbar in yourself and for me it just makes me think that i'm moving plastic around an ugly playing space rather than playing as a daft elf faction a daft what the Daft Elf, a Dark Elf faction vying to win power in the Underdark. A strong game, a very clever game, and something that I always enjoy playing, if indeed I get a little bit stressed out while playing. So a good effort, and please give us a new board, new components, and this will be a great game. You're so shallow. <laughs> You're the worst. Okay. When I first played it, I thought it was good. The good news for me is that now, more than half a dozen plays in, I'm starting to love it more and more. Now, love it is a big word. I love it because it's comfortable, because it's like an old jumper, because you pull it on, you know how it works, you know what's going to happen, you know there's going to be certain rhythms to the game. I'm starting to follow other people's decks and what they're doing, because there's nothing wildly innovative. There's no huge strategic strokes you can pull off, but the bits they've put in combine so well, it's so well honed, it's so well developed, that every single game is going to be quality. It's going to be hard to have a bad game. It is for me to deck building what Lords of Waterdeep was to work a placement. I've played Lords of Waterdeep over 20 times since it came out. It's never been my favourite game, but every time I get it out, I know I'm going to enjoy myself. I know that players who are quite new can play it. I know that Game Wars will enjoy it as a palette cleanser, and that's where Tyrants the Underdark fits for me. I know I'm going to have a good experience. There's almost no risk. It is my 13-year-old daughter's current favourite 
hotness game. She's absolutely in love with it. And I can see that if I was 13, it would be my favourite game ever as well. And I don't mean that as a disrespect. My personal taste for my absolute favourite games is probably something deeper. This just fits so well in my collection. I'm really happy with it. And I can't wait until they give me more decks because I'm sure they're going to. They couldn't leave me hanging like this. Tyrants the Underdark. Very well done. Okay, there you have it. That's Tyrants of the Underdark reviewed. Next up, we're going to be talking some Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. Please hurry up, Essen. Please hurry up, new Euro games. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. <laughs> ah, Tyrants of the Underdark's a Euro game, really. Yeah, in its heart, though, I'd yeah, say. It is. I'm, only, I'm going to try and console myself with that thought. Yes, and following our Manchester of Madness episode, we are going to be pouring out as many Essen previews as we possibly can. We always get lots of listens to those every year. I know people look forward to them, listen to them on the way to Essen, whet your appetite for some of the upcoming games. So we're looking forward to getting those done. We're getting all excited about Essen over here. I hope you are, or at least getting excited about the massive flood of games that are going to come out. There's going to be some stinkers. There's going to be a bunch of all right ones, but there are definitely going to be some fantastic games. Absolutely. And as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there for fabulous gaming podcasts. We are also on Twitter. We are at Game Pit Podcast. If you wish to email us, we are the Game Pit Podcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page. We have a Board Game Geek Guild. If you ever got any questions for us, please pop along to the Guild. If you wish to download our episodes, you can do so on Podbean on Stitcher, or of course on iTunes. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Music by E. Aaron. Music